Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick sitting in today for Scott Lamar. Today we'll try to answer some of your biggest questions about fracking. Pennsylvania has been one of the hot spots of the so-called shale revolution, which has sent domestic oil and gas production soaring. But a decade into tapping into the gas-rich Marcellus shale, people still have a lot of questions about what's going on and what it means for the economy and our environment. Here with me today to try to tackle these questions is Daniel Ramey, a senior research associate with Resources for the Future and author of the forthcoming book, The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. Thanks so much for joining me, Daniel. Morning, Marie. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to start with, tell me how you came to write this book and, and what is Resources for the Future? What exactly do you do and what interested you in this topic? Sure. So uh, I guess I'll talk first about how I came uh, to be interested in this subject and then give you a little bit of information about Resources for the Future, or RFF. Um, so I got into this topic when I was in graduate school. I was living in North Carolina, studying at Duke University, and I did an internship for the State Department of Environment. Uh, the legislature had asked the department to write a study on the potential impacts of shale gas development in North Carolina, and I participated in that study in writing a portion of it. Uh, so I became really fascinated in the subject. I actually took a couple trips up to Pennsylvania uh, while researching uh, for that report and uh, spent some time in southwest Pennsylvania getting to meet some people and learn about some of the impacts, uh, both the, the benefits and the challenges of uh, shale development in Pennsylvania. And um, a couple years later, uh, I ended up doing a larger research project with my colleague uh, Richard Newell, who is uh, also now at Resources for the Future. We looked very closely at how oil and gas development around the United States has been affected by shale development, uh, and in particular, how local communities have been affected by that development. So we were really focused on uh, how local governments were seeing new revenues, but also how they were seeing new challenges and new costs. So I ended up traveling to uh, pretty much every major oil and gas play in the country, something like 21 regions uh, in 16 different states, and I interviewed uh, over 200 local government officials and then uh, once the evening rolled around and I was done with my formal work time, I would head off uh, and try to find something to eat or maybe something to drink, sit down at a bar stool and strike up a conversation with whoever was around. Uh, and I ended up learning a lot about the shale revolution uh, through those informal conversations as well. So I feel really lucky to have um, been able to meet a lot of people in oil and gas producing regions, as well as look closely at the evidence on a variety of topics. Uh, briefly to talk about resources for the future, or RFF, I've been at RFF for a little over a year now. Uh, we're based in Washington, D.C. We are an independent 
nonprofit research institution. And the mission of RFF is to try to improve the environmental, energy, and natural resource decision-making through impartial economic research and policy engagement. So we work really hard to be entirely evidence-based. We don't advocate for particular policy solutions. Um, and uh, we've been around for over 65 years. So RFF is a great place to be, and uh, I'm honored to be uh, part of the team there. Yeah, and I want to say I, I really enjoyed reading your book, The Fracking Debate, which comes out December 26th. Um, so before we get too far into this, I just want to say, you know, the book is structured to tackle some of people's biggest questions about this whole shale revolution, uh, the fracking boom. You define it. You talk about, you know, will it make people sick? Uh, does it contaminate water? Uh, what does it mean for the climate? Ha- has it made the U.S. energy independent? What has it meant for the economy? So the book is just structured in a great way to just get at some of those key questions people keep asking again and again. But before we get too far into this, I just want to define fracking because what I've noticed as a reporter here covering this is that really the general public and the industry kind of use the word fracking in a different way. Um, So it was added to the dictionary in 2014 um, and it was defined as the injection of fluid into shale beds at high pressure in order to free up petroleum resources, um, which is very specific and I think that's how the industry tends to use it. But when the public talks about fracking, it often encompasses all of shale development, meaning they might say there's fracking trucks, there's fracking pipelines, there's fracking workers. So what I guess for the purposes of our conversation today, we're talking about fracking, meaning the whole shale boom, which is shale oil and shale gas, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And the the issue that you raised, the issue of, you know, what what does the word fracking mean uh, is a really important one. And it's one that I explore in, in one of the opening chapters in the book. Um, one of the fascinating things that I, I think a lot of people outside of the industry don't know is that the oil and gas industry has been uh, stimulating underground rock reservoirs to increase oil and gas production for basically since its inception. Uh, actually, it was in uh, the 1850s in Pennsylvania, in northwestern Pennsylvania, where some of the first commercial oil wells were developed. Uh, in the 1850s, there were people uh, walking around uh, carrying wheelbarrows full of nitroglycerin explosives <laughs> that they would would sell to the well operators. The well operators would lower those explosives into the ground, maybe just 100 or 200 feet deep, and they would detonate them. Um, that sounds that really detonation, safe. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was not the safest practice. And you can actually, uh, I cite this in the book, you can uh, find some websites that, um, that document some of the injuries and fatalities that occurred uh, in the 1800s and the early 1900s in the Pennsylvania oil fields. Um, and many of them were related to, you know, improper handling of these explosives. So the idea of, you know, stimulating underground rock reservoirs by either blowing stuff up uh, or injecting uh, liquids or other materials at high pressure, this is actually not anything new for the industry. Um, and that's a point that you'll hear made frequently uh, by industry advocates. Uh, and it's correct. Um, what's really different this time about the shale revolution and about fracking in this context is that uh, the injection of water along with sand and chemicals uh, deep underground has targeted a different type of rock formation, and that's uh, the word shale. Um, 
shale is a rock formation that is typically seen as impermeable. That is, oil and gas won't naturally move through it easily. So in order to get the oil and gas profitably from those shale formations, you need to stimulate them with this injection of of high-pressure water and other materials. So that uh, technology, the hydraulic fracturing technology, has been coupled with other technologies like uh, horizontal drilling, very precise seismic imaging, so companies really know what's down there under the ground. They can target the best spots. Uh, and there are a variety of other kind of smaller technological innovations that the industry has developed over the last 10, 15 years that have advanced this shale revolution. So uh, while fracking you know, may encompass Uh, at least in the popular discourse, fracking, I think, encompasses the entire industry, Uh, oftentimes uh, the word itself can create confusion because when some people use the word fracking, they mean the discrete process of hydraulic fracturing underground. And when other people use the word fracking, they're talking about the whole enchilada. And um, my hope is that this book, uh, along with our conversation today, can help um, make those distinctions, uh, which are actually quite important for policy reasons, as I'm sure we'll discuss in the next 45 minutes or so. Yeah. So for our purposes, I would say we're talking about the shale revolution. Since your book's called The Fracking Debate, uh, we're, and shale revolution is in the subtitle, we're, we're talking about this big boom of domestic oil and gas production. Um, most of it in, in Pennsylvania, it's been basically gas. Um, but let me just start with one of one of the first chapters you have. And, and this came up this week because there's just another study of, out about uh, public health and fracking. So um, one of your key questions in the book is, does fracking make people sick? Yeah, uh, it's um, that this is good timing in, in a sense. Uh, there was a, a study released just yesterday in the journal Science Advances uh, by several authors, um, very well-respected authors, um, who took a look at um, mothers who were carrying babies uh, in uh, across Pennsylvania in regions where shale gas development was occurring. And they tried to answer the question, um, does living close to a well site that has been hydraulically fractured, does that affect health outcomes of the newborn child? Uh, And what they found in this study is that there were actually some negative health impacts from living uh, within one kilometer of a hydraulically fractured well. The um, This finding is somewhat consistent with some other research that's been out there. Um, there have been a couple studies um, from, from a variety of researchers looking in, uh, particularly in Colorado, as well as in Pennsylvania, and trying to tease out um, what the health effects of shale development have been. It's important to say with all of these studies, including the one that came out yesterday, um, these are not uh, sort of bulletproof, uh, 100% certainty findings. One of the big challenges that all of these papers face is that they have a hard time identifying the mechanism through which people's health might be affected. So they measure health outcomes for people living within a certain distance of, of wells, but they're not able to directly measure you know, what might have actually caused those health effects. So uh, although we know there are air emissions around oil and gas production sites that potentially could affect people's health, these studies have not definitively established that those air emissions or any other mechanisms have directly impacted people living near those well sites. And so my takeaway from this study uh, and my takeaway in the book when I'm discussing previous studies that have come out is that, uh, you know, I don't really see these as a as a red flag. 
but it's certainly a yellow flag. And it indicates that we need more and better research about the emissions coming from these well sites, as well as how people are exposed uh, to those emissions when they live or work or, or maybe go to school nearby. And this question has been really hotly debated. The last thing I'll say about it is that there are policy measures that policymakers can take to reduce the risks of health impacts for those living near shale development. In particular, uh, they can um, step up regulations that focus on the air emissions that come from the diesel generators as well as the uh, flowback fluids and flowback gases that come up from the well during the period during and after hydraulic fracturing. Those are the um, appear to be the most risky components are these air emissions, and there are ways of regulating those to reduce the risk. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking with Daniel Ramey, a senior research associate with Resources for the Future and author of the forthcoming book, The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is one 800 729-7532. Daniel, another key question people have is about water contamination. Um, what did you find there? Uh, thanks, Marie, for that question. But before I talk about water contamination, I just want to make one more really quick point uh, on the air issue that we were just talking about. And that is, while there appear to be some risks of living close to oil and gas production facilities, potentially through these air emissions, there have also been really important air quality benefits from the shale revolution. Uh, and those have been distributed widely across the country. Primarily those come from the displacement of coal-fired electricity by natural gas. And natural gas uh, emits, when it's combusted, it emits far fewer uh, carbon dioxide emissions, which contribute to, to climate change, but they also emit far fewer pollutants that actually directly harm human health. And so those benefits have been really important, although they're more widely distributed. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind when we think about the health effects of the shale revolution. Turning to the water issue that you just raised, um, there has been a lot of concern and a lot of debate about the risks to drinking water sources from oil and gas development. Now, whether that involves hydraulic fracturing or not uh, is an important question. There have been several studies, as well as uh, very well-documented evidence from Pennsylvania and other states, that oil and gas activities can and do contaminate underground water sources on a fairly infrequent basis. So in Pennsylvania alone, there have been more than 200 cases confirmed by the Department of Environmental Protection where oil and gas development has led to uh, what's called stray gas or methane migration. So natural gas itself can get into people's drinking water sources, particularly if they're on well water. Now, Hydraulic fracturing and the chemicals used in hydraulic fracturing have, by and large, been not uh, 
have not been associated with those instances of contamination. And so while oil and gas development broadly has the potential to affect groundwater and surface water sources, uh, the underground process of hydraulic fracturing and the chemicals used underground, those really don't look like they are a substantial risk. However, like I said, there have been hundreds, maybe thousands of cases around the United States where people's groundwater have been negatively affected by oil and gas development. Once again, this is the type of issue that can be regulated and can be reduced. However, like any human endeavor, oil and gas development involves people working uh, who might make mistakes. Uh, it's possible that oil and gas companies, if they're on a tight budget, might cut a corner or two and increase the risk of contamination. So uh, as long as oil and gas development occurs, uh, we are likely to see some scale of problems, either on the surface or underground. Those are usually not directly associated with hydraulic fracturing, but that doesn't mean we can ignore the problems, uh, and they are real. Uh, they are not maybe as widespread as some people think. I talk in the book about uh, exactly how prevalent these instances of water contamination are and getting data is a little bit difficult, but uh, there is some decent data from Pennsylvania. And if you look back over the last several years, you see that in the early days of shale development, we would see uh, methane migration or stray gas occurring in a little bit uh, fewer than 1% of the wells drilled. So less than 1% of new shale wells were potentially leading to these problems. Over the years, that percentage rate has gone down, such that in 2015, there were actually zero new cases of methane migration from oil and gas development, or at least from shale development. And um, so we see a positive trend in that direction, but it's unlikely that the problem is going to go away entirely. And I know one of the problems we've had in Pennsylvania specifically is there really is no regulation of private water wells. So when this industry came into town uh, and people said, hey, the gas industry's created a problem with my water well. It was it was hard to tell whether there was a pre-existing problem or whether they did indeed cause it. That's right. And this is, again, a place where policy can play a pretty useful role. Uh, Pennsylvania, uh, I believe, has a policy where before uh, shale development can take place, groundwater testing needs to occur within the vicinity of the place where the, the shale well is going to be drilled. So that helps you establish a baseline level of water quality so that you know if there is contamination uh, to a drinking water source, you have some baseline information to know uh, whether or not that drinking water source was contaminated before the oil and gas drilling occurred. And those types of regulations have been put in place in some states, but not all states. Uh, and baseline water quality testing is uh, probably not a perfect way to understand this issue, but it, it seems like one of the best tools we have to actually know whether someone's groundwater supply was affected by oil oil and gas development, or by uh, some other mechanism. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. 
You're listening to Smart Talk. Today, we're trying to answer your questions about fracking. I'm joined by Daniel Ramey, a senior research associate with Resources for the Future and author of the forthcoming book, The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. And I want to turn to the phone now. Uh, We have a few callers, and Bob in Harrisburg is on the line. Bob, you're on the air. Hi, Marie. Thank you. Um, so Daniel said that the health risks are um, very possible, and of course, as we said, there are some variables. But the one thing that really strikes me here and should be included in the conversation is the idea that we're looking at a timeline of great uncertainty. Every engineer that I've spoken with, uh, every geoengineer, has said that the well casings ultimately are compromised. And so it's just a question of when, not if, there is future contamination of the aquifers and exactly on what scale that represents a greater threat to uh, not only uh, human life, but life in general, since the ecosystem itself is being affected. And I think, Daniel, you've probably addressed that somewhere, but uh, it needs to be included that we're looking at future risk to generations to come as well as what's current. All right, thank you, Bob. Daniel, do you want to tackle that? I mean, these well casings, uh, what what does it look like over time and how strong they are, how they can deteriorate? Yeah, Bob, that's a great question and a great point. It, it is really important to think about not just the current impacts, but the potential future impacts of shale development, uh, both at the local and uh, the, the regional scale. When I think about this issue of long-term well integrity, uh, you're correct that uh, over time, uh, cement degrades and steel uh, corrodes to some extent. And if we look across uh, the literature of the risks of oil and gas development, we can actually get a decent handle on that question. So uh, there are a whole bunch of studies out there in petroleum engineering journals in particular about, um, about whether the uh, degradation of cement or steel will actually lead to contamination. And what those studies tend to find is that while it's true that you can have increasing problems with the well over time, the instances of contamination attributable to those problems is actually pretty low, uh, in, in, on the order of 1% or less. Um, but, but to take an even further step back, when I think about this long-term question, I think about uh, the 1850s in northwestern Pennsylvania. I think about the early 20th century in Texas and places like Beaumont, Texas, which was one of the places that had one of the first really huge oil booms. And when you look at the groundwater uh, in those regions, the groundwater is basically fine. Uh, the well construction techniques used in those areas was far less sophisticated than what we have today. And uh, the Uh, the concern about having widespread uh, water aquifer contamination from the industry, we just haven't seen it in those places. And so uh, so I look to those historical examples to, to give me some sense of what we might be looking at from shale development 100, 150 years down the road. And, and frankly, it doesn't cause me that much concern because we haven't seen those types of large-scale contamination events in older oil and gas-producing regions. So, Daniel, another big question, a big concern people have is around earthquakes. Could you talk about this? Um, Fracking has been blamed for man-made earthquakes or what's called induced seismicity. Um, What did you find when you looked at that? 
Sure. So this is one of those places where uh, where the terms you use uh, tend, tends to be important. So uh, fracking itself, the injection of water, sand, and chemicals deep underground, there have been a few cases where that process itself has led to relatively small earthquakes uh, in Alberta, in the United Kingdom, uh, in a couple other places in the United States. But the, the major concern with induced seismicity, uh, also known as human-caused earthquakes, is really related to something else, which is uh, the management of wastewater produced from oil and gas wells. Uh, when you hydraulically fracture a well, the water that you initially pump down there, much of it comes back to the surface. You have to capture it and dispose of it some way. But even more than that, all oil and gas uh, reservoirs have a certain amount of water contained within them. So when the oil comes up from deep underground or when the gas comes up from deep underground, you also get a lot of water. And in most cases, the water produced from those formations is a far greater volume than the water that was initially used for hydraulic fracturing. And so you have to dispose of a lot of water. In some parts of the United States, particularly Oklahoma, but we've also seen cases of this in Texas, uh, Ohio, Kansas, uh, and, and perhaps some other places, if you inject too much of that wastewater uh, too quickly into the wrong spot, you have the potential to alter the stresses deep underground and the potential for uh, for a fault to slip and cause an earthquake. And Oklahoma is kind of the poster child for this issue. They had over 900 earthquakes in 2015 of magnitude 3.0 or greater. And uh, that was very concerning. I visited northern Oklahoma where much of these quakes were centered and, and people were seeing cracks in their walls and they were worried about their property values, uh, not to mention the general uneasiness that you might feel when you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel an earthquake uh, in the middle of Oklahoma where you never expected to deal with this issue before. And so, so it's an important issue. And... Uh, Oklahoma has taken some steps to address the issue uh, on a regulatory basis, and that's uh, that's encouraging. Um, and but it but the problem is likely to be with them for years to come. There are some other cases around the country of induced seismicity, and in those cases, the earthquakes actually didn't stop for several years, even after all of the injection of wastewater was halted. And so this is an issue that's probably not going to go away anytime soon in Oklahoma. Uh, however, uh, I think they have gotten it under some reasonable control. Um, but not being a geologist, I don't want to speculate too much on what they might be looking at in the future. The, the last thing I will say is that when you think about the shale revolution, it's really important to remember that it's happening in all different parts of the country with lots of different local dynamics, both in terms of the cities and the counties where it's happening, but also in terms of the geological factors where it's happening, you know, what's going on in those rocks deep underground. And while we have seen problems with seismicity in Oklahoma and very limited cases elsewhere, we really haven't seen them in, on any large scale in Pennsylvania. Uh, we haven't seen them in large scale in Ohio, partly because of smart policy action that was taken in Ohio. We haven't seen it in North Dakota. We haven't seen it in a lot of places. And so while uh, wastewater disposal can cause uh, earthquakes in some cases, it doesn't mean it's going to happen everywhere anytime you have shale development. And I think that's important context to keep in mind. Right. And I know Pennsylvania has expanded its seismic monitoring network um, partially to address this issue. And we also just we don't actually have a lot of those underground disposal wells. 
Um, but moving on to another key question here. I think to me, this is the question about fracking. Is it good or bad for the climate? Because, you know, I've reported on this a lot in Pennsylvania. You've traveled all over the country um, and you've seen people who've gotten great jobs, really benefited from this, gotten royalty money um, for other people. It's it's not been so great. They've They've had bad experiences, environmental problems. But when you zoom out and say, is this good or bad for society? Um, is this helping us move down a path toward a cleaner energy future? I mean, that's a global goal. That's a societal goal. Um, and as you mentioned, gas is pushing out dirtier coal-fired power plants, which is good for human health and air quality. But big picture, what is using more natural gas specifically? I mean, what does that mean for the climate right now? What, what, what does it look like? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's uh, and, and it's complicated uh, because the energy system is enormous, and it's really complex, and it's interlocking. So when one thing changes in the energy system, that causes a cascade of, of other changes uh, across the system, and trying to account for all of those things is pretty difficult. Um, but there have been a number of studies that have tried to answer this question uh, over the next several decades, uh, what might uh, the shale revolution mean for uh, climate change and and myself, along with uh, my co-author Richard Newell, we actually studied uh, we studied this and published a paper on it in 2014. And essentially, what we found is that um, uh, Marie, you're correct in that the availability of low-cost natural gas has displaced coal uh, from the electricity sector, and that's uh, positive in terms of reducing greenhouse gas or uh, carbon dioxide emissions. There are concerns about methane emissions from natural gas systems, but the best research on that topic shows that uh, the amount of methane that is escaping from oil and gas systems is not enough to negate the climate benefits of displacing coal in the electricity sector. So uh, when it comes to thinking about natural gas versus coal, it seems pretty clear that natural gas uh, is a win uh, for the climate when you compare it with coal. But you can't just compare it with coal. You have to look at other uh, parts of the electricity system, such as nuclear power and renewables. And cheap natural gas has been an important component in making it difficult for a number of nuclear power plants to compete in today's environment. So we've seen a, a bunch of nuclear plant closures over the last three or four years, and a lot of that is attributable to the low cost of natural gas. And when we lose nuclear power from the system, we lose an important uh, zero carbon dioxide source of electricity. Uh, cheap natural gas also challenges uh, the uh, market availability of renewables like wind and solar. Probably not to a huge degree, but uh, they, those two sectors are competing for investment dollars, and that's important to keep in mind. Now, the last uh, component of the energy sector that we need to think about when we think about low-cost natural gas as well as low-cost oil is that when energy is cheaper people tend to use more of it. Uh, in the book, I use the example of happy hour at a bar, which is, you know, one of my favorite hours of the day. And if I go to a bar at happy hour and, you know, the price of a martini is half off, then I'm more likely to have two martinis uh, than one martini. That might be a bad choice uh, for me for the next day. <laughs> but at least, uh, but it illustrates the point that when things are cheaper, people tend to use more uh, of, of that cheaper thing. And so when people use more energy, that leads to increased greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's from natural gas, coal, uh, oil, or any other fossil fuel-based source. And so these, uh, these studies that are out there, generally what they find is that the shale revolution over a couple of decades probably doesn't have a big impact on the United States' 
long-term greenhouse gas emissions. It's clearly been a benefit in the short term by displacing coal. But because of these other factors that I mentioned, when you look out over two or three decades, the overall impact of cheap natural gas is quite limited in terms of its climate impact. Now, the last point I want to make on this is uh, those findings in those studies, they find that cheap natural gas is probably a wash, excuse me, for the climate, but that's without policy. What natural gas, uh, what the availability of cheap natural gas has really done for the United States is it's provided an opportunity for policymakers to craft policies that enable a relatively low-cost switch from coal to natural gas and other sources in the electricity sector. And so cheap natural gas makes it easier to implement climate policies that can get the United States on a more sustainable pathway. And that's a real opportunity. So whether or not policymakers take that opportunity is an open question, of course. Um, But without policy, what we find is that shale gas probably doesn't mean a whole lot for, uh, for climate change in the long term in the United States. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm Marie Cusick, WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. Today we're answering your questions about fracking with Daniel Ramey, a senior research associate with Resources for the Future and author of the forthcoming book, The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And I want to go to the phones right now. Uh, we have Michael in Glenrock. Michael, you're on the air. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have more of a comment, I guess, than a question, uh, just for clarification regarding natural gas as a cleaner fuel. Although it does burn cleaner than coal, a DOE report indicated higher upstream emissions for fracking, uh, you know, then there has, in fact, been no comprehensive life cycle carbon assessment of fracking, as far as I know. Um, we are cautious when it comes to things like food and medicine, uh, nuclear power, and even wind power. But fracking, at least in Pennsylvania, has been fast-tracked without a comprehensive understanding of all the impacts, especially with regards to emissions of methane, as the speaker mentioned. Uh, which is a more potent greenhouse gas than even carbon dioxide. Um, However, despite the earlier comment, fugitive methane emissions in particular are still a big unknown. And without this data, the statement that natural gas is a lower impact to climate change is erroneous. Solving climate change probably would have been more effective to have been investing in in truly renewable energies than sinking budgets in, you know, natural gas development. That's the end of my comment. All right. Thank you, Michael. Daniel, you know, you just said based on all all the things you've looked at and how the energy sector is sort of this interlocking puzzle um, that you think gas looks like it's a wash for the climate. So as people here in Pennsylvania see these large natural gas fired power plants being built, lots of pipelines to um, ship that gas to feed new power plants or to be shipped abroad. I mean, why? With this stuff is going in the ground, it, it's supposed to be have decades of, of life, these pipelines, power plants. So how are people supposed to feel about the trajectory of our natural gas usage? Yeah, well, um, let me uh, briefly address uh, Michael's comment and then uh, and then talk about those those long term issues. Um, 
Michael mentioned uh, fugitive methane emissions, which, which has been a, a really important topic. And over the last several years, there's actually been a whole lot of research on that topic. Dozens and dozens of papers have come out in academic journals. And I, I summarize that literature in the book. And while there are a couple papers out there that show high methane emissions, uh, emissions that would uh, substantially reduce natural gases, greenhouse gas benefit relative to coal, when you actually look at the full body of work that's out there and some of the studies that are really the most comprehensive that do look at upstream emissions as well as downstream, what you find is that uh, the methane emissions rate is really doesn't look like it's high enough uh, to substantially reduce natural gases benefit relative to coal. Um, I would agree with Michael. There's still some uncertainty out there. I don't think we've nailed this question down entirely. But at this point, to, to my analysis, the best evidence points uh, to natural gas really being a climate winner over coal. Now, when we think in the long term about natural gases' uh, contribution to climate change, pipelines going in the ground, uh, natural gas-fired power plants being built, I think here, uh, as a policy researcher, I think about the role of policy. And if policy were in place, either uh, at the state level or preferably at the federal level, to move the United States towards a lower greenhouse gas emissions future, then these natural gas systems being put into the ground could actually be a benefit because the policy overarching uh, the entire system would tend to push us on, on a lower greenhouse gas trajectory, and that would tend to mean less coal and more natural gas, which, as I just mentioned, I think is a win. But in the absence of that policy, and, and we are mostly living in a world absent that policy today, then natural gas probably isn't uh, doing a whole lot for the climate in the long term. That said, there are many major companies out there that are planning on uh, a robust national policy on greenhouse gas emissions sometime in the future. It doesn't appear that's going to happen anytime soon, uh, but if and when a more comprehensive national climate policy were put in place, then I think we can think of these natural gas investments as being beneficial for the climate, uh, at least in the next couple of decades. When we look towards 2050 and beyond, that, uh, when you look at um, sort of climate change reports from the IPCC and other organizations, that's when we're really going to have to think hard about getting to a system with zero net carbon dioxide emissions. And that means using a lot less of all fossil fuels, including natural gas, unless we're able to develop technologies like carbon capture and sequestration that can allow for the continued use of fossil fuels uh, with substantially reduced greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, and I want to get to a listener email. This is from Cynthia in Juniata County. She has a comment. She says, there needs to be less emphasis on the discussion about energy sources and more about decreasing demand. The problem is not obtaining more energy. It is using less. Um, Daniel, what do you say to that? That's not as sexy a topic, but um, what about decreasing demand? No, it's it's a, it's a fantastic question, and um, and there is also a large body of research on this issue of you know how might you induce people to be more energy efficient and to reduce their uh, energy consumption. One historical point that's worth making is that the United States over the last couple of decades has really improved on its energy efficiency. Uh, the energy efficiency of the economy has improved substantially. Um, that said. Individuals in the United States use more energy than their counterparts in Europe and their counterparts in you know most other countries around the world. That's partly because uh, we have a high standard of living. 
and we have a, a robust economy. Now, uh, in terms of you know, if you wanted to really decrease demand or incentivize energy efficiency across the economy, again, my policy hat comes on and I start thinking about the role of policy. Um, I think, you know, if you and your friends decide to get together and, and buy uh, LED light bulbs instead of incandescent bulbs or CFLs, if you decide to purchase a low emissions vehicle, I think that's fantastic. And I think those are positive steps that individuals can make. But looking across the entire economy, it's hard for me to envision uh, reaching the types of climate goals that the Paris Agreement and other uh, international agreements have laid out without a more comprehensive uh, federal policy on climate change that both reduces the carbon intensity of the energy system and also encourages people to be more energy efficient and use energy in a smarter way. I want to get to some of the benefits of the shale revolution you discuss in your book. You know, one thing that's often said about the fracking boom is that it will make the U.S. energy independent. And before you answer that, can you just define what what is energy independence exactly? It's usually uh, it's usually talked about in terms of the U.S. importing foreign oil, right? That's right. And uh, this is another chapter in the book where I spend a decent amount of time trying to define a term because the, the, the term energy independence has been around for, for decades. It's been used by many presidents. There's actually a wonderful clip from The Daily Show uh, with Jon Stewart maybe five or six years ago where they put a compilation together of all the U.S. presidents talking about independence and how we're about to be energy independent and in five years we're going to be energy independent. And of course, that never happens. Um when people talk about energy independence, uh, Marie, you're right that they mostly are referring to the import of foreign oil. And um, and that's important. Uh, when the U.S. imports less foreign oil uh, and produces more of its own resources at home, that tends to be beneficial for the economy uh, and beneficial to the balance of trade in the United States. But when people think about energy independence, my reading on this is that they're actually not that concerned about importing foreign oil. They're more concerned about the prices that they pay at the gasoline station when they pull in. Uh, I did an analysis that I include in the book where if you look at interest in the term energy independence uh, through Google searches, when uh, gasoline prices go up, people get really interested in energy independence. When gasoline prices go down, they become less interested in energy independence. Uh, when oil imports go up, there is actually no correlation between the amount of oil we actually import and the interest that people have in energy independence. And so what this tells me is that energy independence is mostly a, con uh, um, a term that people use when they actually mean concerns about high energy prices. And when it comes to energy prices and the oil market, no one is actually independent. Uh, in the book, I talk a little bit about Canada. Canada is a large energy exporter. They produce much more oil than they consume. So by a standard definition, Canada is energy independent. However, Canadian drivers, when they pull into the gas station, they see the same price spikes and swings that U.S. drivers do as well. That's because the global oil market is very well integrated. Uh, oil can be moved relatively cheaply from anywhere in the world to anywhere else in the world. And that means that buyers and sellers are continually looking for the best prices. As a result, the price spikes that you might see on your street corner in Harrisburg 
are going to be echoed by the price spikes that someone might see in Shanghai uh, or that someone might see in Thailand or that someone might see in St. Petersburg or in Moscow. Uh, the oil market is global. And so when it comes to oil prices, no one is independent, uh, even those major oil producers like Canada or Saudi Arabia. But the surge in U.S. oil production driven by fracking has helped push oil prices down, correct? That's correct. And that's a really important point. Um, because oil markets are global, they're, again, really complicated, and it can be hard to identify any one factor that leads uh, to changes in oil prices. But the analyses that are out there suggest that the shale revolution, which has brought online uh, 4 million barrels per day more oil from the United States, has probably been the leading factor in the decline of oil prices that we've seen since uh, late 2014. Oil prices are starting to creep back up again. That's in part because of decisions made by the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC. Uh, and that kind of uh, suggests that even though the shale revolution has helped reduce oil prices and gasoline prices in the United States, it's not negated uh, the market power that some nations, particularly in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, have to affect uh, oil prices over time. So while the shale revolution has certainly reduced energy prices uh, for U.S. consumers, it has not made the United States energy independent. If anything, it's actually made the United States more deeply integrated into the global oil market because we are now actually exporting uh, more oil than we ever have in the past. And that's actually probably a good thing uh, for the stability of energy prices moving forward. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick. Today I'm talking with Daniel Ramey, a senior research associate with Resources for the Future and author of the forthcoming book, The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. Daniel, I want to get to another benefit uh, the fracking boom has brought the U.S. Uh, what about the economy? What, what has it done for jobs and employment? Uh, what has it meant for people in terms of money in their pocket? Yeah, that's another great question. And um, when I think about the economic effects of uh, of the shale revolution, I kind of I think about three things. Um, the first two are on a national scale, and the third is at the local scale. So on a national scale, if we think about the contribution of the oil and gas sector to gross domestic product or GDP, that's a broad measure of uh, how the economy uh, is uh, growing or shrinking. In 1998. The oil and gas extraction sector, uh, which is kind of the core of the oil and gas industry, was about 0.4% of GDP, really a small uh, con contribution to the overall economy. In 2014, at the peak of shale development in the United States, that number, excuse me, that number had grown to 1.7% of U.S. GDP. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but if you look at the numbers, 1.7% uh, uh, GDP compared to 0.4% of GDP, that's $294 billion. And how much is $294 billion? Well, it's actually larger than the entire economy of Arizona. It's larger than the entire economy of Chile, the nation of Chile. And so so that's big money. Uh, and those $294 billion don't even account for the uh, induced and secondary impacts of the industry, which are probably even larger uh, than the figures that I just mentioned. 
Now, the second uh, issue that I think about in terms of economic benefits are the benefits of those low prices that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Low gasoline prices, low natural gas prices, uh, and lower electricity prices than we would have otherwise seen. Those savings uh, have resulted in hundreds of dollars of benefits per year for most U.S. households. Uh, and that's a pretty clear uh, cause, uh, excuse me, it's pretty clearly caused by the shale revolution. Those low energy prices has, have probably saved most households uh, over $1,000 over the course of the last five years. Uh, and that's real money. Now, moving to the, the local side of the economic impacts, uh, in Pennsylvania, there's actually been a series of really good studies from uh, Tim Kelsey uh, and Kristen Hardy at Penn State University. And I, I cite them in the book. And if you look at the counties in Pennsylvania that have the most Marcellus Wells and compare them with the counties that have zero Marcellus Wells, the counties with the most wells consistently outperform other counties, both in terms of wages and salaries, in terms of business profits, in terms of total income for individuals, and in terms of total employment. Uh, and these benefits were accruing to people in Pennsylvania during the Great Recession. So there were many communities that I visited around the country that basically told me that the shale revolution helped them ride out the Great Recession and that it was continuing to provide economic benefits for their communities. Uh, and that's a, a hugely important thing uh, for you know hundreds and thousands of individuals and their families around the United States. Daniel, we only have a, a few minutes left, but just now that you've written this book and you've done all this research, you've traveled all over the country, I mean, how do you answer that sort of, I call it the dinner party question, people ask it to me when they learn about uh, the fact that I cover fracking, and when people say, what, what am I supposed to think about it? You know, because people tend to fall into these two camps of either real uh, boosterism, and this is our the panacea to our energy problems, or, or it's going to, you know, poison us, and it's really dangerous. So, how do you how do you answer that question after having written this book? Yeah, well, I'll tell you that having written the book and having met so many people around the country, it's harder than ever for me to answer that question simply. Um, you know, what I found is that people living through the shale revolution uh, have a much more nuanced view about this topic than many individuals who live further away. And there's actually good social science research on public opinion uh, by Hilary Boudet and some other uh, researchers at Oregon State University uh, that have examined this question. And, uh, and, and like I said, what they find is that the people in West Texas or the people in North Dakota, the people in northern Pennsylvania and southwestern Pennsylvania who are experiencing this firsthand, they're experiencing the benefits and they're experiencing the risks. And they acknowledge both of those and, and have come to live with them. I guess when I think about this overall question of has it been you know, good or bad, uh, I think about different geographic scales. I think for the United States as a whole, the benefits in terms of the economic benefits that I was just talking about and the greenhouse gas benefits, as well as air quality benefits from displacement of coal, it's hard for me to think that the shale revolution has been bad for the United States as a whole. Now, when you get to the more local level, things get more complicated. And for individuals whose well water uh, have been affected by stray gas or methane migration, it's not been a positive for them. For individuals who may have lost a loved one uh, or who have been injured by vehicle accidents related to truck traffic on the roads, it's not a positive for them. Uh, for individuals whose health may have been affected by living close to an oil and gas producing site, it's not been a positive for them. And so while um, 
we can try to be rational and do cost-benefit analysis and come up with the ultimate question, I think any really deep dive into this topic reveals that we've seen a lot of benefits, we've seen some real risks, and there are still uncertainties that are out there that we've talked about today. And um, and I think it's it's hard to say that fracking's been either all good or all bad. I think it's pretty clear that it's been a mixture of those two things. All right, Daniel Ramey, a senior research associate with Resources for the Future and author of the forthcoming book, The Fracking Debate, The Risks, Benefits, and Uncertainties of the Shale Revolution. It comes out December 26th. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Marie. I really enjoyed it. And you can hear today's show and previous editions of Radio Smart Talk at WITF.org slash podcasts or with the WITF app. You can also hear the entire program at 7 on our website and on our website, WITF.org. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures.